Hey there. Before we start, just a heads up that this episode includes strong language and some graphic descriptions of violence and human remains. Okay, here's the show. Thank you very much. On November 7th, 1983, President Ronald Reagan held a large ceremony on the South Lawn of the White House. Hundreds of people were there to celebrate the success of the U.S. invasion of Grenada, codenamed Operation Urgent Fury. I'm so glad to meet you and to be able to say it officially, welcome home. The audience was full of medical school students who had been evacuated from Grenada. Some were standing behind the president. They wore blazers and ties and skirt suits with shoulder pads. And they had they had soldiers who had participated in the invasion seated up front and always in the front. Stephen Trujillo was an army ranger who had parachuted into Grenada. A great many of you said you believed you'd be dead or held hostage today if it weren't for the courageous men whose business it is to be courageous. Our soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen. At some point, I'm just drawing it. I'm just drawing it on. You know, I'm zoned out. I mean, I don't care about President Reagan giving a speech. You know, I'm a grunt. I'm an airborne ranger. I wish I could tell you all the acts of heroism that I've been hearing. And then I heard my name. Sergeant Stephen Trujillo, a ranger, is one example. He spoke my name, and I'm like, what? His unit was engaged in an air assault on the Calavina compound, which was held by Cuban forces. When I first heard this, I was like, oh my gosh, Reagan is saying the name of the place, Calavini, where we think Maurice Bishop might have been buried. But Reagan was talking about Calavini for an entirely different reason. This military camp was also where Steve and his fellow Army Rangers fought in one of the final battles of Operation Urgent Fury. Sergeant Trujillo was in the first of four helicopters to go into the compound under intense enemy fire. Upon landing, Sergeant Trujillo saw the three other helicopters lose control and crash into one another. Three Army Rangers died in that helicopter crash. Others were injured. More men would have probably died if it wasn't for Steve. Sergeant Trujillo began administering first aid to the critically wounded. His unselfish actions were instrumental in saving the lives of a platoon leader and several other seriously wounded soldiers. Steve was awarded a silver star for his heroism at Calavini. The White House ceremony ended with a band playing The Stars and Stripes Forever. And then they picked me up, and they stood me up, and they walked me up, and I took a picture with myself and Ronald Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan. How did you feel in that moment? Um, I was was a robot. I was just moving on automatic pilot. I don't remember feeling anything. What Steve experienced during that battle at Calavini haunted him for years. It caused, you know, nightmares and, you know, a whole panoply of PTSD symptoms, right? And to try to process what he went through, he wrote a book. 
writing this book for me was, uh, well, I, it was me purging myself of uh, toxins that, uh, you know, had become rather ruinous in my life. That book is why I tracked Steve down. Because when I read it, I got this pit in my stomach. He shared details about what happened at Calabini that I had never heard. And these details may offer a new explanation in the mystery of the remains of Maurice Bishop and his supporters. From The Washington Post, I'm Martine Powers, and this is The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. Episode 5. When we tracked down Sergeant Stephen Trujillo this past July, we had already been working on this project for over a year and a half— We'd been trying to follow the thread of what we'd heard from so many Grenadians. But you've heard since the first episode that the U.S. government had a reason to make sure that the remains of Maurice Bishop were never found or identified. So we spent a lot of time looking into that and talking to anyone we could find who we thought could have been in a position to know. I mean, I just don't get why. I mean— Maurice Bishop, okay, he was a, a thorn in the side, but it wasn't. I mean, in 29 years with the U.S. government, I never ran across anybody hidden for any symbol or anything like that. That is Lino Gutierrez. He was a Foreign Service officer sent to Grenada right after the invasion. Listen, Maurice Bishop was killed by communists, was killed by the pro-communist, pro-Soviet faction, uh, and we intervened to get rid of those guys. So I don't follow the logic of uh, Maurice Bishop as a symbol for communism or anti-Americanism. I mean, he was like, I mean, was he a hardline communist? No, but he was like Marxist, yeah, he, communist, he talked light. About, he talked Ray, about, Reagan certainly didn't like him. Well, we don't like a lot of people, but that doesn't mean we... Uh, <laughs> Disappear their bodies. Yeah, I mean, he was talking about the Revo, you know, he was like yeah. a sort of a Caribbean... Mm-hmm. We like the fact that he brought in Cubans uh, to build, in, build an airport. Best friends with Fidel Castro? I mean, that's, As, well, that's something that the U.S. isn't excited about. Mexico has been friends with Fidel Castro for years. So we still have uh, NAFTA and other things. Mm-hmm. No, but I, I, you know, conspiracy theory can can be, uh, you know, I get it. I get it why the Grenadians would want closure on their bo- uh, finding their bodies and all that. Lino Gutierrez was not the only person we talked to about this. We tracked down more than a dozen former U.S. government officials who went to Grenada and who were in key decision-making roles right after the invasion. We reached other people who worked for the State Department then, people from the Department of Defense, a military intelligence officer, a retired member of Congress, and a former congressional staffer who went to Grenada. And we just asked them, do you know anything about what happened to Maurice Bishop's body? Consistently, the answer was no. And the overriding message we got from many of these people was that, in fact, from a diplomatic perspective, identifying Bishop's body and making it public would have helped them. We had every interest to find it. 
That's Guy Farmer. In the aftermath of the invasion, he was a spokesperson for the U.S. mission in Grenada. Here's how he explained it. From my standpoint, uh, public affairs, public diplomacy, good for the U.S., yes, it would have been good for us if we had found Maurice Bishop's body showing how violent and terrible that the Bernard Cord Hudson Austin faction was. That would have been good for us. We also spent time looking for Americans who worked for the CIA and who might have gone to Grenada after the invasion. I'm David Bush. I was a CIA military analyst concentrating in 1983 on Cuba. David Bush told us that until we connected with him, he hadn't even known that the body of Maurice Bishop was missing. And he didn't think that the U.S. government would have had anything to do with it. We're not that kind of country. You know, we wouldn't do something like that. At least I wouldn't think we would do something like that. I know, I never heard this story. But when David told us about his trip to Grenada, there was a detail that stuck out to us. So this was a trip that he'd volunteered to go on. He left for Grenada with a small team on October 30th. That date was seared into his memory because he had to miss his birthday party. My wife drives me to the Pentagon while the whole rest of the family's on their way over to our house for the birthday party. She drops me off at the river entrance. I walk inside, and there's the whole rest of the team in full battle gear, minus weapons. David and the team arrived in Grenada early the next morning. And your goal in going there was to... Find out what was there, how many Cubans were there, were they doing anything we didn't already know about, and what did they have? What did they have, as in what kinds of weapons did they have? As a reminder, Cuba had been helping train Grenada's military. They'd also sent workers to help build the airport that President Reagan was so worried about. One of the places that David went was Calavini. It had been a training camp for the Grenadian and Cuban soldiers. It was also one of the areas where they stockpiled their weapons. David says that he went there on November 2nd, so about a week after the start of the invasion. And when he got there, he remembers driving to one end of the peninsula where... We found a shallow grave that we found by the smell. I didn't see the actual grave. I only could tell that it was there. So we could see the disturbed earth and we could smell So it was recent. Though David didn't look inside the grave, he could tell that there were human remains there. You'd never forget the smell of rotting human flesh if you've ever uh, had that kind of experience. He says that when he returned to the U.S., he reported what he saw up the chain. But he doesn't know what anyone did with that information. We asked him if any other Americans would have gone to Calavini before he had. And he told us that there had been a helicopter crash during the invasion, when U.S. Army Rangers had raided the area. This is the crash you heard President Reagan talking about in that ceremony. You know, I didn't see any evidence of that other than the the tires from one of the helicopters that had crashed. And that was uh, further down the slope. This wasn't the first time that I'd heard about a crash at Calavini. I'd read about it in books about the war, and you can actually see where it happened across the bay from my parents' house. But it hadn't hit me as being important to the question of the bodies. Not until many months later, I was thinking through the timeline and all the people we'd interviewed. 
I went back to the days between the U.S. invasion and when we thought the remains were exhumed. And then I remembered the helicopter crash. It happened on October 27, 1983, so two days after the start of the U.S. invasion. And I started going through all the Urgent Fury history books that I'd read before. I control f for all the mentions of Calabini and Rangers. And one of the footnotes in one of those books pointed me to a memoir written by a ranger. That ranger was Steve. And it was the book that he'd self-published to help him deal with what he'd been through. It's called A Tale of the Grenada Raiders, Memories and the Idioms of Dreams. Okay. Uh, my name is Stephen Trujillo. Um, I'm retired. I have a grandson now, and so that's what I do. I, I, I'm a grandpa, and I, I spoil him ridiculously. Which I'm sure he totally deserves. Oh, yeah, absolutely, that. yeah. These days, Steve lives in Bangkok, so we got him set up in a studio there, and we connected with him over Zoom. He's in his early 60s now, but when I saw him on the screen, I immediately recognized his face. Like, I could see the same guy from those photos at the White House event back in 1983. This guy in his Ranger uniform standing next to President Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan. So, yeah, I, in 1983, I was, I was an Airborne Ranger, I was a uh, platoon medic in Company A, the first platoon, Bad Mothers. Where did that name come from, Bad Mothers? You know what? I investigated that. I asked, and it's lost in the mists of history. Nobody knows, but it's stuck. You talk to people now, they, you know, you're either, you were either a bad mother or you were not. And you should know that's mothers with a U and not a no. And how are the rangers used by the military? Like, what are rangers capable of doing, or how are they used in in warfare? Shock troops. Yeah, shock troops. Um, When you need an airfield seized, that's the classic ranger mission. It's America's premier raiding force. Okay, that's what rangers do. So when an ugly, dirty job needs to be done and you need somebody killed, you need somebody captured, or you need a target secured. Those are rangers. That's a ranger mission. They, they do that. Steve remembers when the bad mothers were pulled out of training and told that they needed to prepare for an invasion. It would be his first time ever in combat. It was a lot of his platoon's first time, too. He learned that they were being sent to a Caribbean island, Grenada. Their first task was to take control of its new airfield. The Cubans were building a 10,000-foot runway out there, and we don't like that, so we're going to go take it. And we're like, okay, that's what rangers do. We'll go take their airfield. When you hear Steve describe it, it sounds so simple. But Steve would end up experiencing firsthand a lot of the missteps that turned Urgent Fury into a cautionary tale for the military. There were failures of intelligence and communication that show how this victory came at a huge cost for Americans, too. I'm going to take you through his experience leading up to the crash. We have corroborated his account with more than 10 other rangers who were in Grenada who we interviewed. Also, oral histories from a lieutenant general and a commander who were there, as well as three books by two historians and a journalist that mention the same events. As Steve said, rangers were trained for missions just like this. But his platoon knew that it wasn't going to be easy. 
The airfield was under the control of Cuban military construction workers who, in addition to building the airfield, were guarding it. They had anti-aircraft guns, and they were ready to use them. Except those weapons couldn't easily fire at things lower than 500 feet in the air. So the decision was made that the rangers would parachute onto the island. They would jump from an altitude of 500 feet, which was very low. And to catch the Cubans off guard, they'd be jumping in the dark before sunrise. And how did you feel in that moment when you were hearing about where you're going and, and what you were going to need to do? Honestly, I thank the great ranger in the sky for giving me a real-world mission. Wow. Yeah, we all did. Keep in mind, we're multiple volunteers. I mean, we competed. We, we, we worked to qualify to be allowed to be first on the ground, to parachute in combat. We volunteered for this, okay? That's what we are. Even before they could make it onto the island, there were problems. As we approached, as we got close, you know, I have this sense of dread because I just see the sky outside getting lighter and lighter and lighter. You know, and I'm fearful because we're going to lose the advantage of jumping in at night. Their aircraft had departed too late. The sun was already out. Broad daylight, right? And, I, and, and we're mad. You know, I was mad. I was really mad, you know, that we were delayed and that they had delayed us and delayed us and delayed us. So finally we're jumping in and as we're coming in, there's like this boom, boom. It's like sledgehammers hitting iron. And these are bullets, 23 millimeter, hitting the aircraft. And, and those are bullets from the Cubans? Yeah, Cubans, yeah. They're shooting at us. So you could see the, the tracers coming up, you know. So I, I saw that and I'm like, holy He says soldiers in the plane he was on started jumping out into the hail of bullets. But just as it was about to be Steve's turn, the guy in front of him stumbled. So when he stumbled, I fell down. I literally could not get up because I was too heavy. I was carrying too much stuff. The jump master picked me up by the pack tray and threw me out the bird. I bounced off the side of the aircraft tore my helmet off, you know, messed me up a little bit, and rang my bell pretty good, you know, so I kind of blacked out for like four or five seconds. And when I came to, I'm seeing tracers cross the runway below me. I mean, they're coming from both sides. I mean, it's rangers firing on Cubans and Cubans firing on rangers, and the tracers are crisscrossing on the runway beneath me. He landed on the runway safely, tried to join up with his platoon, and shot at the Cuban soldiers. Automatically, immediately, rounds are snapping right by me, right past me. Somebody's shooting at me, trying to kill me. I'm looking for him. I can't see him. The one time I did see him, I dropped him. Dropped him as in shot him. When a ranger fires on a target, he hits it. All right? We don't miss. It didn't take long before the rangers overpowered the Cuban resistance and took control of the airfield. Our snipers dropped a lot of Cubans. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel sorry for them these days now, but at the time, you know, we were killing them. That was what, why we were there. Um, I mean, if, if they wanted to surrender, fine, we'd take them surrender and treat them professionally with courtesy. 
But if they took up arms against us, if they tried to fight us, we dropped them, we killed them. You know, and this is not going to make Cubans happy. I mean, Cubans that happen to listen to this conversation that we're having right now, I'm sure it's difficult for them to listen to. And I'm sorry about that, okay? I really am. But it was war. I was a soldier. They were soldiers. And this is what happens when old men send young men to war. We fight and we kill each other for really stupid reasons most of the time. Day two of the invasion brought a new mission for Steve and the Rangers, rescuing the American medical students. His platoon had been told that the students were all gathered together on campus in a neighborhood called True Blue, right next to the airport. We extracted a whole bunch at the True Blue campus, which is where we expected them all to be. The Cubans didn't do anything with them. The Grenadians didn't really do anything with them. They could have, but they didn't. You know, we were allowed to to extract them, you know. But under fire, yes, but, we, you know, it was trivial. But when the rangers started talking to the students, they got some pretty important information. There were actually two campuses. More than 200 Americans were gathered at the other campus, a mile and a half away. And then someone's like, well, you, don't you guys know there's a whole other campus at Grand Ass? We're like, no. Nobody told us. Nobody informed us of that incredibly salient fact A lot of the soldiers we talked to saw this as a pretty profound failure of intelligence, even military leadership. General John Vesey, who oversaw the invasion, he later called it, quote, inexcusable. Especially considering that these students were supposed to be the reason the U.S. had invaded Grenada. And yet some significant part of the military hadn't been made aware that there were two campuses, both with students. No, nobody bothered to tell us. That information was never filtered down to us until the day we flew in to get them out, right? And then we're like, oh, there's another campus. Okay, great. Where is it? Okay, thanks. Thanks for telling us. We'll, we'll go get them. And we did. So day two, the student rescue, done. Then came day three. Steve's platoon had actually been told that morning that their part of the job was over. They'd seized the airport, the students were safe, the fighting was mostly over with, other units were coming in to relieve them. They were going home. They said, we're done. You guys are done. We're pulling you out. We're sending you home. That's classic, you know. You're going home, really? Okay. And you're stupid if you believe it, right? At some point, they came down and said, ah, (laughs) no, we're not. There was one more place they had to go. There's this target at Calvini. It's a Cuban training area. There's like 800 Grenadian militia and 60 Cubans. I can't even remember. But it was was a hard target, right? The Rangers were ordered to prepare for an attack on Calvini, about four miles east of Point Salines Airport. They'd be coming in on Blackhawks, and they'd be doing it that day. The objective here was... To, to seize like, the objective, to, 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 to kill all those guys that are out there and take away their training school. It was going to be our training school after that. Military leadership was split on whether this mission was necessary. 
the order came down from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. H. Norman Schwarzkopf, a major general at the time, he said in an interview after the invasion that he thought it was, quote, the stupidest goddamn order I've ever heard. Steve and the other rangers we talked to remember another commander being angry about this decision. They weren't given a lot of time to strategize or to get more intelligence about what they'd be facing at Calavini. They thought it was going to be dangerous. So Steve remembers the commander saying, Well, it's a raid. We'll do it, but you're going to prep the target. And that means drop Artie and drop bombs on it. Artie meaning artillery. And he prevailed on him. He said, my rangers aren't going to go unless you make it a parking lot. Make it a parking lot. Or, as another ranger told me, bomb the hell out of it. Eliminate as many enemy fighters as possible before they arrived. So, Calavini was bombarded. Steve and his platoon watched from the airport as it happened. They watched the army fire shells toward Calavini. And they watched U.S. Navy aircraft circling overhead. So they're dropping 500-pound bombs, and we can fill them and see them. What we learned from accounts put out later by the U.S. Navy is that the aircraft were also dropping cluster bombs, as well as firing thousands of rounds of ammunition. And they were aiming for the buildings and facilities on the compound, anywhere that Cubans could be taking cover. And we could see the, the artillery hitting, you know? And we're like, yeah, good. You know, we're happy. Thank you, guys. You know, we're like applauding the, the, the gunners, the artillerymen. I saw that photo in your book. Yeah. Of like, yeah. I mean, it looks like a mushroom cloud yeah. coming up from yeah. Calavini. Yeah. That, we, we flattened it. You saw the mushroom cloud, you looked, and then you heard the wump, and then you kind of felt the ground shudder all that way away. You could feel it. Then it was time for the rangers to take off. From the accounts we've heard, the first wave out was four Blackhawks with 15 rangers in each helicopter. Steve's chopper was in the lead. Though Calavini had been bombed, they didn't know how many of the enemy might still be alive. The rangers were worried about being outnumbered. So the plan, as Steve remembered it, was let's surprise them. Come in low over the water, come in fast— then have the helicopters kind of hug the slope up to Calavini so no one on the hilltop would be able to see them until right before they landed. And you'll hear Steve talk about birds. In this context, a bird is a helicopter. So there I am on the lead board. We're flying into Calvini. And I could see the, you know, the ground sweeping beneath us. It's, it's, it's all in fire. It's just rubble. And it's all in fire. And the structures that were on the target were blown up. Then Steve's helicopter came in for landing. Steve and the other rangers told us that they thought the helicopters went in too fast. I mean, when my bird landed, it bounced hard. I mean, it bounced us out. It landed so hard because they came in so hot. Steve ran for cover. Then helicopters two, three, and four came in for landing. And uh, I felt and heard the third bird hit hard, bounce, and then rotate forward into the second bird, and it knocked its tail sideways. The two Blackhawks that were following Steve's helicopter had crashed into each other. 
the rotor blades kept spinning. So the second bird, I looked at it, I literally saw the tail fold, and then the bird flipped over on its side. And there were guys that were getting out on that side, and they got rendered. Sergeant Stephen Eric Slater, Specialist Philip Sebastian Grenier, and Specialist Kevin Lannon were all killed during this landing. Kevin had been a close friend of Steve's. Several others were wounded. I look back and I see this happening. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's happening. But I'm looking to this threat to my front because that's what I think in my mind, the immediate threat's got to be suppressed before we do anything. Steve started to run forward. But remember, he was a medic. His team leader told him, no, you need to turn back and help the soldiers injured in the crash. And I looked at him in shock and I'm like, you're crazy. I'm not going back there. We've got to kill these guys to our front. I didn't say anything, but this is what my thought process is, right? And I just looked at him. He looked, he grabbed me, and he said, and he shook me. He says, Doc, go back there. They need you. So I swore at him. I was pissed. I was really mad because I didn't want to go back there. But I did. I went. For the record, we interviewed this team leader, a staff sergeant. He didn't want to be named, but he did confirm this part of Steve's account. So I'm moving through wreckage, through classic Hieronymus Bosch hellscape. There were craters everywhere from all the artillery and bombs. The ground was on fire. A nearby oil tank had been hit, and black, noxious smoke was billowing. I got there, pulled a couple guys out and pushed them and said, go to cover, go to cover. Pulled them out. Some of them were dazed, you know, got it, but I got them moving. And then... In the mud, there was a platoon leader, a first lieutenant. He would had been pushed down into the mud, and a rotor, rotor blade had hit him and uh, took his leg off. And he was trying to, like, backstroke through the mud. And... It was horrible, because when I got to him, he's like, oh, I'm saved, Doc's here. And then he just, like, collapsed and laid back. And I'm like, dude, you got to help me. I couldn't move him. I tried to move him. I, I, I grabbed him by his collar, and I started dragging him, and I could not move the man. So he started backstroking again and together, me pulling and him backstroking. I got him away from the bird. And there was, like, a hole. One of the 500-pounders had made a nice, good, deep hole for me. Steve pulled the platoon leader into the hole. And the uh, first thing I did was throw him a tourniquet on his leg. And so I told him, you know, and he's watching me. I said, okay, your tourniquet's on. Uh, IV number one's on the way. Steve most likely saved his life. This is the story you heard President Reagan tell. What got Steve the Silver Star. Reagan had said that the Rangers had taken intense enemy fire. But there are conflicting reports about whether that's true. Steve and a few of the soldiers we talked to, they said they were shot at. And some news stories from right after the invasion suggested that there might have been 20 to 30 enemy fighters still at the camp when they flew in. Some of the other Rangers said that they thought if there was any fire, it was friendly fire. And they didn't remember seeing any Grenadians or Cubans at the camp at all. 
What we know for sure, though, is that there definitely weren't hundreds of Grenadian and Cuban soldiers up there. Major General Schwarzkopf later called it, quote, a dry hole. He said that there had been no military reason that the Rangers needed to take the Calavini barracks that day. And it ended in tragedy. Three men died and five others were seriously injured to secure a target that they could have just walked into. But the Rangers' experience at Calavini wasn't over. Coming up, the piece of the Rangers' story that changed my thinking around the mystery of the remains. As the rangers set up defenses on Calavini, it started to get dark. So that night, we stayed at 100% security, so nobody slept. That's Scott Brazil. He was also in the 2nd Ranger Battalion with Steve. We reached him at his home in Wyoming. He and the other rangers, they had orders to stay at the camp that night to defend it. And they thought that they could still be in danger. And uh, we had Spectre gunship flying overhead for most of the night until the clouds came in, and then Spectre had to leave. And it was at that moment in the night, in the middle of the night, that it started sinking in. And uh, I, we all thought we were going to get uh, a counterattack. The rangers spread out across the camp, away from the helicopters. There were craters from artillery and bomb blasts all around them, so the rangers used them for cover. It was always easier for us to jump into a crater that had been pre-dug for us by artillery or bombs. Just score them off and make them deeper and, you know, and say thanks to the Air Force or the Navy, you know, for helping us prepare such nice, glorious fighting positions. They were worried about getting picked off by Cuban snipers, so they couldn't use flashlights or start a fire. It rained, so they were cold and wet. They cleaned their guns, they talked in whispers, and they thought about the friends that they just lost. They also started to hear this sound. It was this eerie cry. One of them thought it was a baby wailing in the distance. And then they realized there were goats. And one of those goats had uh, been trapped in all the rubble and was, you know, making that noise for most of the night. And I just remember that as, as clear as I'm standing here on this ranch today, that that damn uh, goat just cried for most of the night. It was a fucked up feeling. And then there was something else. It just branded into my memories, and it was just smell. There was a smell there that was nothing like I had smelled before. It wasn't until sunrise that Scott and Steve figured out where the smell was coming from. The next hole over from Steve's, where another ranger, Mike Farmer, had spent the night. And just a warning, this is another part of our story where the accounts you'll hear get pretty gruesome. Mike Farmer woke up the next morning... I mean, everything smelled like death, okay? But he woke up to find that he had slept in the embrace of a corpse, a rotting corpse that had been there in the ground and just just displaced by multiple artillery hits 
right? And we were all of us. We were we were we slept in a graveyard, all right? We slept, you know, there were bodies in the dirt, in the ground that we were in and we're digging in, right? Rotted fragments of flesh and bones. You know, they were I mean they were they had been dead. Not for a long time, but for a while. I tracked down Mike Farmer, the ranger who had been in that hole. He didn't want to be recorded for the podcast, but he did tell me what he experienced. I'm going to summarize his version of this discovery. He remembers being in his hole. He was cleaning his gun. This would have been while it was still dark. And in the process, he stuck his knife in the ground beneath him. He said that when he did that, this wave of smell came out stronger. He started gagging. He couldn't see what it was, but he knew by the smell that it was human remains. Then it started to get light out, and Mike remembers seeing the same thing that Steve saw, parts of bodies. One of the things that Mike saw was a leg. He says he also saw genitalia of at least one man and one woman. What was there was badly burnt and unrecognizable. He didn't know if there were more people buried underneath. Scott Brazil remembers seeing remains there, too. As the sun was coming up, he says he threw someone a lighter for a cigarette, but he missed, and the lighter landed in a hole. So I get out of my position, and I walk over to him to grab the lighter for him, to hand it to him. And it had fallen into this, uh, like, black mush that was down in this hole. And I said, oh, dude, I'm sorry. He goes, stare at that hole for a second. So I did. And and that black mush, it was moving. It was actually moving. And it was like it had maggots or worms or something in it. I know these details are truly awful to hear, but they are important to know because there are implications to what the rangers saw. Bodies, at least one male and at least one female. Bodies that had clearly been decomposing for days. At the time, the rangers didn't know what to think about who these bodies belonged to. But according to Joseph Lane, the commander from the Grenadian Army, who you heard previously, there was only ever one set of bodies buried at the camp. The bodies of Maurice Bishop and others who were executed with him. I explained to Steve our theory. When I saw your account in the book and when I hear this from you now, I was like, oh, maybe those were the same bodies. Quite possible. There's no doubt about it. We wanted to make sure that we were talking about the same area. Can you see my screen now? Yeah. How, how deep can you get into that? How close can you, can you zoom in? Senior producer Ted Muldoon pulled up a photo on his computer, an aerial image of Calavini taken back in 1983 by the U.S. military. We also described to him the topography of that area, kind of explaining what he was looking at, where there are trees, where the hillside drops off. This doesn't show the terrain. So right here, as you can see here, this is actually a precipitous drop. Right, right. right. And that's what's happening here it drops off. Like Then we were, that's where we were. That's where we were. Yeah, no question. We were in that area. Okay. Wow, this is freaking me out that you've got this photograph. The spot where Steve remembers seeing the remains 
It's the same spot where we believe Bishop's remains were buried, just eight days before Stephen the Rangers arrived at Calabini. Do you recall when you saw those bodies, like I know you you wouldn't have known any of these people, so you wouldn't be able to identify them, but do you think that they were identifiable to someone who knew those people? Only through DNA. No. Okay. Yeah, you are not going to look at the body and know unless, unless there were there were clothing fragments and they could be identified through through clothing fragments. Yeah, but from visually. No. No. You had described the bodies have been fragmented in pieces or broken up to some degree. Yeah. Would that be yeah. consistent with the shelling? Like the bodies in that grave could have been broken up by the artillery fire itself. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. No no question. This is the thing Steve told us that changed our understanding of what might have happened to the remains. To him, it was possible, even likely, that the grave had been bombed or shelled or hit with artillery fire during the bombardment of Calabini. When we asked the rangers about what happened after they discovered these remains, some told us that they didn't really do anything about it. They didn't think much about them and just covered them up because you wouldn't leave remains uncovered. Other rangers told us that they reported what they'd seen up the chain. They weren't sure if anyone investigated any further. Over the last 40 years, The mystery around these missing bodies has had two distinct parts to it. One part, of course, is where the bodies ended up. But the second part is about the state of the bodies. What happened to them along the way? Why they ended up so destroyed when they were examined in that anatomy lab? Remember the broken, fragmented bones. Dr. Robert Jordan, the anatomy professor, he thought that they looked like they'd been dynamited. That was the word that he used, dynamited. And for the first time, in talking to Steve Trujillo and some of the other rangers, there was a potential explanation. The bodies might have been accidentally bombed by the U.S. military on October 27th, almost two weeks before they were exhumed. We wanted to run this theory by an expert, so we reached out to Brian Kastner. He used to be in the military. He worked as an explosive ordnance disposal officer. What's an explosive ordnance disposal officer? Good question. Uh, It's a fancy name for the bomb squad. Since 2018, Brian has worked for Amnesty International, where he investigates the use of weapons in conflict zones. In a perfect world, I'm able to get to the crater and pull out pieces of the weapon and identify what was the weapon, uh, what was the likely target, how did it get here. But we can't get everywhere. And so a lot of times I'm looking at photos, videos, satellite imagery to do the work remotely, and then just trying to do the best job you can with the available evidence to say, here's what most likely happened. That kind of evidence is what we had to show him. We had aerial photographs we'd gotten from the U.S. Navy. They showed Calavini in the days before and after the attack by the U.S. military. And in some of them, you can make out the area where we believe the pit was located, that the bodies were left in. The before photo is so detailed that you can actually see tire marks in the same area. We also had those photos of the pit taken by the Associated Press during the exhumation. Remember the image of U.S. soldiers carrying a body bag away from the pit. There were also 12 other photos taken at that scene that show the area around the pit. 
So we wanted to know if Brian saw any evidence in those images that the grave had been struck by some kind of explosive. I can tell you what I can see and what I can't see. So what I can see is that there used to be a building in the before image that was generally an L shape. And now that general shape is no longer there. That L-shaped building he's talking about, it was right next to where we believe the pit was located. In another photo we showed Brian later, when we got through a Freedom of Information Act request made to the Navy, someone had drawn red circles around the site of that building and others around it. And there's writing on the image that says, quote, indicates destroyed buildings. Brian also pointed out something to us in a few of the AP photos that, for all of my staring at them for hours, I had never noticed before. I do see lots of broken branches and stumps that look like they might have been involved in blast. Not necessarily burned, but um, but there's a certain like tearing effect that you see in vegetation when there's a detonation. In one image, a whole tree appears to have been ripped out of the ground. The trunk is in pieces. It's called the brisance. So brisance is the shattering effect of explosives. We know from Navy records that the bombs that were dropped in Calavini were Mark 82s, which are 500-pound bombs, and Mark 20s, which are cluster bombs that explode over a wide area. How big a blast are we talking about here? Like, if a bomb like that drops on a house or on a car, what is the damage that this bomb is capable of wreaking? Unfortunately, I can't give you a standard answer. But, I mean, I guess as a, I would just say generally it can be hundreds of feet many hundreds of feet in all directions that a person could be injured either by the blast or the fragments. Brian did want us to keep in mind, just because a bomb might have hit the site next to the pit doesn't necessarily mean that blasts from any of these weapons would have affected what was inside the pit. And from what he could see, he couldn't definitively conclude whether the pit itself was hit. That would require more detailed photographs of the area. As I mentioned, we FOIA'd the Navy for any additional aerial photographs of Calavini from before and after the bombing. They released two new aerial photographs, including the image with circles around buildings that had been hit. They also released a couple of others, which we already had. Here's the thing, though. The letter we got back with those photographs said that there were 31 other pages related to our request but that it was determined that they contain classified national security information. So they couldn't give them to us. We have appealed that decision, and we're waiting on a response. In doing this reporting, we also reached out to both the Pentagon and the State Department. We laid it all out for them. The accounts from the Rangers, the aerial photos, the evidence suggesting that the U.S. might have inadvertently bombed the grave of Maurice Bishop— we were hopeful that we'd finally get an interview with the State Department. But then they gave us a written statement instead. It was the same one-sentence comment that they'd given me the first time I'd ever reached out to them. Quote, we have no knowledge of or information about the remains of Prime Minister Bishop. And a spokesperson from the Department of Defense gave me this statement. Quote, the department was not able to find any existing records or documents related to this case that can confirm the information presented. 
We also talked to an archaeological geophysicist who specializes in finding unmarked graves. He said that the site of the pit might still contain valuable information, even now. There could be remnants of bones or physical evidence in or around where the pit had been located. He also said that technology like ground-penetrating radar or magnetometers could help you determine if an explosion occurred at the site. But the one problem is, and we saw this firsthand. Hi. We're hoping we could just take some pictures from here of the of the bay there. Yeah, we'll be careful. I know it's a construction site. The area where the pit was located is being developed. Calavini is now a site for luxury real estate. New houses are going up all the time. The window to find more answers there is closing quickly. I went back to some of the family members of those killed on October 19th, voices you heard earlier in the series. I told them about the ranger's story and the potential evidence we had in the various photographs that we were able to get. They had never heard the possibility that their loved one's remains might have been bombed. It just strengthens the fact that they know the U.S. is hiding something. That's Pamela Bullen-Cherubin. You heard from her in episode two. Her father, Evelyn Bullen, was executed alongside Maurice Bishop. Hearing this account of the bombing, she said that she thinks that there might have been an attempt by the U.S. government to cover up the fact that it happened. Yeah, because you know what the sensation that will cause. They already bombed the mental home. They bombed innocent places where they thought people were. So hearing about that again, and this, and you know, imagine this is the idol, this is the leader, this is somebody people look up to, this is their beloved leader to know that not only these guys did these atrocities, but the US came and <laughs> killed them a second time, if that's possible. Pamela thought back to how Grenadians reacted to the invasion. A lot of them were grateful to the Americans for coming and rescuing them from the people who had killed their beloved prime minister. But if news had come out that the U.S. had bombed Bishop's body, in Pamela's mind, that would have soured a lot of the positive feelings that Grenadians had. They will not be looking to the U.S. as a savior as many of those were in those days. They will be looking at them as barbarians, and they didn't want that image. You can hear Pamela's suspicion, but it goes way beyond this new information that we gave her about this possible bombing. Before we discovered any of this, Grenadians already had reasons to believe that there was more to the story than the U.S. had told them. Well, when Earl Brown described for us what he saw, he says, no, I'm based on the clothing, the description of the clothing that Morris Bishop was wearing and Jacqueline Greff, there was no doubt in his mind that um, they were in that grave. That's next time on The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. Episode six of the series, our final episode, at least for now, 
will be out next week on Wednesday, November 22nd. But subscribers to The Washington Post can access it on Monday, two days early on Apple Podcasts. If you're already a subscriber to The Post, you can connect your subscription automatically through The Washington Post channel on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not yet a Post subscriber, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe or look for the link in our show notes. As you've heard, a lot of our investigation has centered on photos, particularly those aerial photos of the pit at Calabini. If you want to check them out yourself, we have them posted online in our episode guide at WashingtonPost.com slash Empty Grave. The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop was reported and produced by me, Martine Powers, along with Ted Muldoon and Rennie Svernofsky. Additional reporting in this episode by Joyce Lee. Our editors are Sarah Childress and Renita Jablonski. Fact-checking by Amelia Schoenbeck. Mix editing by Theo Balcom. Our series theme and music is by Keshav Chandradath Singh. Mixing, sound design, and additional music by Ted Muldoon. Our show art was designed by Lucy Nayland. FOIA guidance from Nate Jones. Publishing support from Allison Michaels. And project editing by Casey Shaper. Special thanks to some of our colleagues, Shane Harris, Alex Horton, Dan Lamoth, and Sean Carter, for help with this episode. Some of the archival tape you heard in this episode came courtesy of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. We also want to thank the very helpful staff at the Center for Military History. Like I mentioned before, there are a few books that we relied on to help corroborate the accounts you heard in this episode. We also interviewed the authors, all of whom were helpful in guiding us to more sources. So I just want to mention those books here. They are The U.S. Invasion of Grenada, Legacy of a Flawed Victory by Philip Kakilski, Cry Havoc, An Untold Story of Rangers at War by Joe Muccia, and The Rucksack War by Edgar F. Range Jr. And of course, Steve Trujillo's memoir is A Tale of the Grenada Raiders, Memories and the Idioms of Dreams. All of these books were so informative. If you want to know more about Urgent Fury, definitely check them out. And as always, you can email us with questions, thoughts, reactions at emptygrave at washpost.com. And please share the podcast with friends, with family, with anyone in your life that you think would connect with the story. Thank you so much for listening to The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. And we will see you next week for our final episode, episode six.